0: Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to the first live edition of the Church and Culture podcast. If you are accustomed to watching us on YouTube, then you can tell that our setup is very different today. If you are just accustomed to listening to us on audio, wherever you get your podcast, then it's all the same to you at this point. We're never in
1: the same room. No, yes, well,
0: but if you just listen to us, you would never know. So, but it's about to get very different. So, and and that is because today Jim is not only joined by me, per usual, and I'm Alexis, by the way, um, but also by Church and culture listeners and guests, um, because they are going to, or you if you're watching today, um, are going to get the chance to ask your questions related to all things church and culture. You say it
1: (laughs) ominously.
0: It just feels. (laughs) like this is turning to Stump
1: the Chump or something like that. We'll see. We'll see. Um,
0: So let me, if you are joining us live, let me just give you a couple of instructions. So, to ask your question, all you have to do is to pull um, up the chat um, that's there on your screen. Um, I think you'll have to sign in really quickly. But pull up the chat and then just submit your questions there in the chat. When I relay them to Jim, I won't mention your name just in case that makes you feel well, a I think they squirmish. can sign in as
1: a guest anonymously too. Yeah, oh, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So yeah. if you
0: just want to put guest, that's totally fine here. Um, but at any point during the conversation, right now, you can go ahead and start um, posting your questions. And then I will – I might um, – compi- I might – if, if they're very similar questions, I might um, combine them together. But um, I will. I've also have a couple of questions that listeners had um, sent to me ahead of time, who knew they couldn't be here. So I'm sure I'll sprinkle those in at some point. Um, but yeah, we'll just kind of keep the conversation on pace with your questions. So we won't go over an hour for sure. But um, we'll just kind of see what questions you have, and we'll take it from there. So. Um, if you have to leave early for whatever reason, that's totally fine. We will release this full episode hopefully tomorrow. Um, and so you'll just be able to catch it after the fact. So I think that's it. Oh, one other thing is in the chat, you are joined by a church and culture um, resource guru by the name of Allie. And she will be there to help um, give you any additional resources if she's known that if she knows that Jim has blogged on a particular question that you have or... Um, done a series or whatever. So you'll want to join the chat even to just compile a bunch of resources. I think that will be helpful. So mm. do you have anything you want to add before we get started?
1: No, no, let's uh, let's have some fun. Okay.
0: Oh, before we get started though, I would like to mention that you have a new book that is officially releasing tomorrow. So can you tell us a bit about it?
1: Uh, actually, it releases uh, Tuesday the 28th, Okay. Uh, so um, close. Okay. Um, yes, it's called Hybrid Church Rethinking Ministry in a Post-Christian Digital Age uh, through Zondervan. And, um, and I, am, I am very excited about it. I've been working on it for three years. And I, I, as I've been kind of sharing and thinking about it personally, it's like I've been writing and researching it for three years, but it's really the product of my vocational lifetime in so many ways. And it's probably the most, uh, in terms of the interplay of church and culture, it's probably the most bleeding edge book I have ever written. And um, so, uh, yeah.
0: Well, if even the title of that um, caught your attention, you have some follow-up questions, I'm sure you know um, Jim would love to answer anything that you have about mm. that. So, all right, well, let's jump in. Um, our first question is, um, let me make sure I didn't say this correctly. So with all things chat GBT, any advice on how to talk to kids about artificial intelligence that establishes the worldview that AI is not human and should not be a friend we seek out or treat as human.
1: Yeah, I think this is really uh, very important because we're already finding that when we're bringing that into basic searches, it can get really sketchy really fast the way Bing recently did and it just didn't work out well at all Um, and they had to pull it. So um, the main thing that I would say about that is what I say about a lot of things with parents and technology. You have to be in charge. You have to be the filter between your child. I would never turn a child loose with AI in any way, shape, or form, and so you have to be the filter for that, the controller of that, the the mediator of that, the guardian of that, Um, and very much let the kids know. I I think right now, I mean, I have 15 grandchildren, and I already see how my children are having to help my grandchildren realize that Alexa or Siri are not real, and to not talk to them like they're real, and to understand that this, you know, and and that's a difficult thing for a child. And so I do think that that's going to be a new aspect of parenting, helping them understand you know, the lines of reality and where technology ends and reality begins or people begins or personality begins. And I think it's going to be more complex now, but again, this is just going to be added to the parents' uh, job description. So I would say you know, the three things that I've always said about parenting, be in charge, involved, and in control. And that includes all things AI. So I wouldn't just turn them loose with that. I would tightly control it, and I would tightly monitor it, and make that part of the the um, the way that you help them understand and interpret the world. And so I I'm grateful that I did not have to deal with that as a parent, um, and I understand the challenges I have it now. But I'm not you know immune to it as a grandparent, where my kids are in the thick of it.
0: Mm. I had a question in response to a recent episode that we did. I think it was the one on medical assisted suicide. But um, the question, you had basically made the point that Americans, I don't know if it's just Americans, but we have like a declining value of the elderly. And so I had a question um, from a listener of like, how can the church be a place that, because you talked about. Talked before about like making sure that we're platforming the young and that we're we're attracting those um, the youth. But how do we do that in such a way that still honors older staff and older attendees?
1: It's a great question because it's it's not you know if you're if you're a uh, it's not an either or. Okay. You know this interplay between the young and the old, and sometimes it's kind of put against each other, like the way evangelism and discipleship are put against each other or um, you know, being outward focused and you know, evangelistic focused and, 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 and inward focused in terms of development or assimilation. So let's talk about young and old. Um, I do believe that who you platform is who you reach. I do believe that if you're going to reach younger generations, you're gonna to have to hire young, you're gonna to have to platform young, you're gonna to have to be sensitive to the issues of those who are younger. I wrote about this extensively in Meet Generation Z and in other places, and MEC itself as a church has skewed younger almost every year for the last 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, most of our staff are in their 20s, early 30s, probably two-thirds to three-fourths. Our church is a very young church in their 20s and 30-somethings, uh, probably as, uh, as a whole and average. But that doesn't mean there's, there's a devaluing of anybody who is older or that there's not older staff. Or uh, if anything, there is almost more value for those who are older um, in the sense that um, I remember I once wrote a blog, maybe we can put this in, where I was almost making a plea for older Christians to align themselves to churches that are actively trying to reach the next generation and serving as mentors and guides and disciples and teachers and helping them with parenting and marriage and just walking with Christ and, um, and, uh, and you know, filling our institute classes and such. And so, you know, that is something that, um, that I think is such a, a phenomenal ministry and, and, and at MEC we value that. And so, so it's valued greatly. And I think that that's the key. Value what you know, anyone of any age brings to the mix. And to understand that the older generation has something st- uh, strategic to give to the younger generation. And the younger generation desperately wants that from the older generation. And so, uh, for example, I just got an, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody by their names, but I just got an email from uh, a, a, a man who was the retired dean of a prominent uh, university um, who uh, is attending MEC. And is active in the Mech Institute, and he was just he was just writing about some things. I was just thinking, what a phenomenal ministry this man has, you know, a retired dean of an established, respected program at a university, and he's pouring himself into younger people through our institute. And I just thought that, you know, how how rich is that? Uh, we have a mentoring program that we recently started, where we we got aside, I don't know, 40, 50 mentors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people that were. Um, on the, on the older end of the spectrum, and walking many years with Christ, who got paired up with groups of three and four people and like, who wanted to go deeper on marriage or on spiritual formation or on parenting. And so when you're strategic about this, everybody feels valued and everybody is served. And so I think that's the vision of the church. I, I think where the church breaks down is is where leaders don't have a vision for all the different age groups, now they interact and how they can all serve. And so you have old people, older people, I can say that because I'm old, but older people who say, ah, I'm not going to serve anymore because I've done my time. Now it's time for the young people to do it. And the older, younger people to say, oh, you know, what our older folks know, you know, and we, you know they're just kind of in the way as we're trying to make for progress. And I think that when you have that kind of dynamic and all that kind of stuff going on, that's that's where there's there's um, there needs to be a leader that gets involved, or leaders that need to get involved, help everybody understand the value of everyone, the intersection, the synergy that can take place, and the beauty of an intergenerational model. And so I, I think at Mech we're not perfect, but we 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 do a lot of fun stuff like that. And so that while we are a church that is attempting to reach. Um, younger generations and successfully, and, and um, we still have a very robust older community who are highly engaged by that, love that mission, and are themselves energized by it. And, and let me compliment our folks that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond. They don't sit back and say, you know, what have you done for me lately? They're not sitting back saying, how can I be served? They have got a towel over their arm, and they're wanting to jump in and get involved, in fact, I think <laughs> I think one of our, I was just, the other day I was introduced to uh, our Max Life director, middle school director, introduced me and said, I want you to meet one of my biggest, best, greatest volunteers. And uh, I, I, this was a retired man in his 70s. And then I could point you to another person who were in our fifth grade. I was talking and they said, so who is like the most beloved person in like the fifth grade ministry or something like that? And they said, oh, that would be, that would be Miss Henry. And I knew exactly who Miss Henry was. Miss Henry is in her 70s and she's got fifth grade boys eating out of the palm of her hand who just worship the ground she walks on. And so when you have that you know, kind of energy going on between young and old, um, it's a beautiful thing.
0: Well, I'll switch gears in just a second, but while we're on the topic, I have a follow-up question to that because you mentioned that younger people do want mentors, mm-hmm. but how do you like reconcile that with, like? And I mean, you wrote a book on Gen Z, so you know more about this than I do. But like, I, I feel like I mean, even even millennials, but especially Gen Z, have this kind of posture of like, well, we're we're not making the same mistakes. Like we've got the, we've got things right that previous generations had wrong, or kind of. I've heard you mention before of even offering yourself, you know, to newer pastors or younger pastors in the area of like, hey, if we I can provide you any assistance and people not really like taking you up on that. Like is there a tension between maybe wanting mentorship or wanting older people but then also feeling like mm. I I got this, like I can do this on my mm. own.
1: Okay, there's two two questions in there or two dynamics. Let's okay. go ahead and chase both cuz hopefully it'll be of some service. On the one hand, here's here's what I consider to be the biggest divide. Is that you've got younger people feeling they don't have time for me. Um, they, wouldn't, they would not be open to this. Um, I would be intimidated to approach them with a coffee because they're busy, they'd probably just say no, and, 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 and you know, they, don't, they don't have time for me, they wouldn't have an interest in mentoring me. And then you've got older people saying, young people just don't have an interest in being mentored. They don't, they don't show any inclination for that. I would be happy to pour into them, but there doesn't seem to be any interest. So it's like, I find It's like when I'm hearing from young people, gosh, I would give my right arm to be mentored in these key areas, either in parenting or marriage or finances or my walk with Christ. I would love to be with an older man or an older woman and and to do that. And then you've got older men and women saying, I would love to pour into younger folk in any way that I could. They do it with humility and a towel over their arm, but I don't think there's interest. And so somehow there's a communications breakdown and an understanding breakdown between the generations because... um, I hear both sides being wanting and willing to do this. So when I talk about this um, and I do it a fair amount, at least whenever there's an opportunity and you've heard me do this, I'll say, hey, uh, folks, take the initiative and go to somebody and say, look, I would love 45 minutes of your time. I will not waste your time. I will come with questions. They'll be pointed. I would love 45 minutes coffee with you. Would you, would, you know, to 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 grow my walk with Christ? And, and could could we do that? I don't know of a single like I, I would tell the young folks on church, I don't have a single older person in this church who would tell you no mm. not one not one they would be honored and at the same time uh, um all of you who are older um, if you don't think they if you if you I mean if you don't think they're wanting that how about you take the initiative yeah. people you already have chemistry with and you're you're enjoying time with just say look you don't have to say hey would you like to be mentored <laughs> it's more like hey I you know I really Love what I see happen in your life. I love your family. You know, you seem to be growing in Christ. I'd love to get to know you better. Would you ever be open to a coffee? And what you're really doing is you're offering to open up your life to them. And so when you kind of create that and make that legal in a church, then and again, I think it comes from the top down. Mm. Then it changes everything. Now, you brought up a second thing, though, that I think is, is a little different. Um, I mean, if if there's pride involved, um, well, I mean, that's that's got to be one of the most deadliest sins and the most life-hampering ones. And you you do see it, sadly, and let's just go ahead and say it. And that's where you have someone who is, you know, 25 years old, and I'm going to be caricaturing this, you know, but the 25-year-old who knows everything. And the 25-year-old who acts like anybody who's older hasn't read the books they've read or isn't up on things and isn't as cutting-edge as they are and so therefore is irrelevant to their life because they don't know anything. And 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 again, you know, that that's that's a you know that that's just that's just a pride that, that is is not helpful and, and is not true either. It's not an accurate self-assessment, and um, and um, and so that, that is that is dangerous. And I'll and I'll speak to pastors out here. I mean, you you you, you shared a story that I I don't know that I would have. You know, I'm, I'm ready to. Sh- oh, but I'll share it because um, I've shared it with you. And and is that I remember there was a season a few years ago. I just felt burden for young pastors in our area, church planners and such. And I I I reached out to I think about I think about fifteen. And just said, hey, I'd love to welcome you to the area and get to know you. And if there's any way I can add value or you know, serve, but I'd love to just get to know you. How would, you know, let's have a coffee. And so um, and so we met, I met for like 10, 12, 15 coffees with these new pastors in the area. And I remember I, I just, you know, tell me to get to know you and all that, you know. And then at the end, I said, well, look, if I can ever be of value, I'm always here. If you ever run into anything, if you want to get together more regularly or regularly at all, if there's anything Matt can do, I can do, if you ever want to pick my brain about something, you know, I'm here, you know, and I would love to, to serve. And, um, and, I, and I did. I did say privately not one of those 15 I ever heard from again,
0: hmm.
1: ever followed up on that, ever said, man, I'd love to, you know, and that's fine. My ego didn't need it. My time schedule didn't need it, <laughs> you know, but I was—I remember I did reflect later. And then again, I'm, I don't want to be hard on those because there could have been all kinds of life issues within and reasons for those folks. And it could have just been that I was off-putting and not an attractive personality and they didn't want to have any more time with me, which is fine. But, um, but I, 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 I was struck that of like 15 people you know you would you know I, I would have given my right arm for that when I was their age when I was in my 20s and my 30s and so um, you know you would hate to think that because you know we're all local pastors there's this kind of subtle competition kind of vibe which I would hate um, but uh, these were I mean you know I mean these were church planners you know mm. and so I, I that was that was disheartening for me. Um, and, uh, and I do think it's disheartening when maybe a young church planner would reach out to someone 300 miles away, but not three minutes away. But I do think that I would say to younger pastors, the same thing that I would say to our younger members here at Mac. There's not an older pastor in your town who would say no to a coffee from a young pastor, church planner. I don't care if you're planning down the street, if they've got any maturity to them, any wisdom, any sense where they've been around a while, You know, been around planning 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, they're not going to be threatened by that, and and they're just going to celebrate a kingdom win, and if you're bigger than they are in three years, who cares if they've got the right mentality and mindset? But they would welcome a coffee and pour into you in any way that they could and would be willing to do that. So take advantage of that, because you're not going to hear a no, and you need that kind of wisdom, because I'll tell you something. Also get it out of your head, and again, one last thing, just for pastors, because not all pastors are listening, obviously. If you think you can only learn from a church that's bigger than yours, that's another humility issue. Um, I, have, I, have, I have never found it to be true that I can only learn from churches max size or larger. I, I've learned as much, if not more, from pastors uh, leading larger, I mean smaller, because it, you know the size of your church has nothing to do with the caliber of leadership, much less the spiritual maturity and wisdom with people. So take advantage of everything you can.
0: Thank you. I, I try to provide helpful transitions between questions, but I'm just, just so they don't sound awkward, but I have no way to transition with the next one. Because the next question is, what is the Christian stance on the growing use of CBD?
1: Well, I don't know that there is a Christian stance. I mean, okay. an official Christian stance. I mean, it, or, or because obviously, particularly in, the, in the, the mosaic that is the Christian movement, the Christian world, with so many different denominations and such that you know, what you can talk about is a Christian consensus in what most would say would be a biblical perspective. Um, and I have found that Christians are conflicted on this, particularly in terms of, are we talking about the medicinal use of CBD? Are we talking about the recreational use of CBD? Um, are we talking about you know the CBD that you can buy as oils versus medical marijuana? Mm-hmm. There's just so many different nuances of this that would make actually a pretty good future podcast. Okay. Um, because there's so many nuances, but I would say that the average, the typical Christian consensus—if I were to, you know, you know, dare a a assessment—I would say that recreational use of marijuana would be probably frowned on by the typical Christian. Yeah, you know, that would be the Christian consensus. There has been historically, yeah, um, and, and it would be in a different category than drinking because. Um, the Bible actually speaks about drinking, speaks about alcoholic intake, and does not condemn it, just its moderation. And when you have uh, marijuana, you are talking about a hallucinogen. I mean, you are you are getting into a different category of, of, of things that almost anyone in medicine would say. You're, you're in a different category. You know, I'm not saying that that precludes it, you're just in a different category. And also Christians would be in consensus against it if it is indeed in your state against the law. Therefore, to take it would be doing something illegal and that would be on face value wrong. Um, medicinal use of marijuana I don't know of too many Christians ethicists that are against that when it goes through a, 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 a doctor. Uh, it's been pretty well demonstrated to help out with some of the pains and issues with glaucoma and such so again it's a multifaceted thing it almost depends on what we're talking about and how it's applied.
0: Okay, And you had done a whole um message on, is it okay for Christians to use marijuana? So, I did, yeah. I
1: did. We had a whole series and it was one of the most popular we did. And I, and I, I think I mentioned to you the other day, I want to have a part two, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we did a whole, we did a whole series called, is it okay for a Christian to, and then we filled in the blank, you know, is it okay for a Christian to, to gamble, to smoke marijuana, to get a tattoo? um and um to um i can't remember what some of the others were to be cremated all these different things Mm -hmm. and 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 it was fascinating because these are like the questions people have uh and and so they were hanging on from the rafters doing that. so i've got a a whole other set that i'm working on that uh that'll be fun to kind of revisit culturally
0: yeah well, speaking of um, all things related to culture, we have a question about how, like, what are some resources that we can use to stay up to date with culture? With all, like, the news coming in daily, um, how do we cipher through it? How do we know what to read and what not to?
1: You know, it's interesting. Let me give you one answer. And then, and then um, that uh, it, it, let's think about an investment analogy. Okay. Let's say you want to invest in stocks. Okay, there's, there's two ways to invest in stocks. You can get someone who is, that's what they do for a living. You find a good manager of a mutual fund, someone who's, who really studies and lives with those stocks. Uh, they're, they're pouring through price-earnings ratios and all kinds of things all the time. They're evaluating the market and they're giving you the best advice and they're feeding that to you because you would have to spend hours and hours to do that or help go to school to learn how to do that or be trained to do that and it's, and it's difficult. So you really need someone you can trust to do that. Or you can do that all yourself. And um, you need to have a little bit of both. You need to know a little about the stock market if you're going to invest in it. You need to have some rudimentary knowledge. You need to kind of know how to tell you know big lies from big truths and all that kind of stuff. But you also probably need to rely on someone, someone who's like doing that full time and trained for it. I would say that when it comes to keeping up with culture, that that's probably not a bad analogy. One of the reasons why we started Church and Culture was because um, that there were people saying, how do I keep abreast with this? I don't have time. or I don't know how to do it. Or I don't know where to do it. And so that was an area that I'd invested my whole life in, in terms of my graduate studies and being a professor of theology and culture and, and, and researching and studying and writing about this. And so, and so essentially what you have with Church and Culture, and specifically the Church and Culture website, is every day. I mean, the news has been sifted from 30, 40 different news sites from around the world. And here are the here are the four leading stories that would be of relevance to the interplay between church and culture here are twice weekly blogs interacting dealing with keeping you up to date on all things related to church and culture and, and perhaps some beginning thoughts about how to think christianly and biblically about those current cutting-edge issues uh, here's the church and culture conference every you know fall and every time fresh material on fresh topics dealing with what is the, you know, the cutting edge issues of the day. And that's where we debuted things like Rise of the Nuns, debuted things like this thing called Generation Z, where this fall, we're going to really debut. What does this mean, hybrid church? And, and it's that way every time with that. And on and on it goes with all the resources. And so the website is 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 where you know, that that's like, kind of like, hopefully a trusted broker of a mutual fund, you know. And then, we also have on there, and through my books, you know, here's here's how to think, here's how to to to, to be abreast of this. I, I always recommend my little book, um, A Mind for God, which is just how do you begin to think biblically? How do you begin to think Christianly? What are the books to read and the foundational things to think about? Because it's it, it's less, interestingly, it's less keeping up to date with everything breaking, although that's good, but um, but you know. C.S. Lewis once made something interesting. He said, you know, one of the best ways to really become an astute judge of culture and to be, uh, because he said, that's what people say I am. That's what he said about himself. Everybody says, I'm, so, I'm, I'm such good at reading culture. I'm so good at understanding, you know, all that. And he said, it's only because I've studied so much of the old books and I kind of know how culture has changed and how culture is supposed to be. And, and I think that's true. It's like, how can you call a line crooked until you know a line straight? And the best way to know straight is to study straight, and that's the way you can also study crooked. Or another analogy: um, the Treasury Department, when they're trying to train people to know how to spot a counterfeit, you don't study counterfeits; you study authentic bills to such a degree you're able to spot a counterfeit. And so that's why the whole appendix of a mind for God or books, you know, that that ground you in, in a biblical worldview and ground you in 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 um, in in the classics of culture, so you can really begin to understand things, because so many of the questions that we're dealing with today, they're not new. They're applied to new issues, but the questions aren't new. The values are not new, and so we sometimes act like we're having to think about these things for the first time. We're not, and that's what leaves a lot of people flat-footed or giving very superficial, shallow answers. Um, And so, um, so I would say, yes, you take advantage of things like Church and Culture and, and the website and all that is there and all that's being poured into that. But then also ground yourself in developing a mind for God and, and, and through reading and, and reflection. And, and so um, that would be my, my recommendation.
0: Hmm. Oh, I can't wait for this one. Can you speak to the Asbury revival? They also asked and what it says about modern worship. But yeah, just your thoughts in general.
1: Well, what it says about modern worship, I really would love to, to bracket as a second conversation. Okay. I mean, so make sure I follow up on that. Okay. Asbury Revival, I'm I'm nothing but just I've been thrilled by it. Um and I have uh, watched live feeds of it. Uh, per their request and uh, you know I, and I wish others had fewer others had flocked to it almost like, you know, um, gawkers mm-hmm. um, because that made them have to shut it down or shut not you can't shut down Revival but shut down the public meetings because the town couldn't handle anymore because so many people were coming in either voyeuristic or just wanting to be somehow, you know, get a selfie with it yeah. and and other things. And Christian celebrities were trying to come there and get attached to it, so they had to stop Christian celebrities. There was a lot there that just was disheartening to me personally, like that what was so authentic and organic with these, these college students. If you know anything about the Asbury Revival, what they're referring to is there was a typical sleepy, I think it was a Wednesday, chapel, and... Um, the guy even said when he got finished with this talk, he said it just wasn't that good of a talk. <laughs> but it was like they were worshiping, and it's like, and, but students didn't leave, and they didn't want to leave, and they just kind of kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going. And and here, two, three weeks later, you know, it, it just it was like around the clock and growing and swelling, and then people started coming from all over, and numbers of 20 and 30,000. We're talking about a little town in Wilmore, Kentucky, at 6,000. And so, um, I uh, I was thrilled at it. What what I was not thrilled about was how so many people through social media were using it to take shots, like um, you know, uh, and and taking shots at other Christians. And that kind of gets to the second issue you said about worship. People are like saying, "See, this is stripped down. This is kids. This is guitars. It's not this." So therefore, let's critique all the other kinds of worship styles that are out there. That's just that's just silly. Or, or, you know, where you're trying to like make what happened there an indictment against everything that's not like what happened there. Um, The fact of the matter is, if you understand revivals and awakenings, you know that um, it's always a Holy Spirit thing that has very little to do with the mechanics at hand. Uh, For example, uh, if you wanted to go and say, well, let's 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 try to you know let's let's try to study how like how did they teach? What was the sermon? What how did they do that? That's crazy. Like Jonathan Edwards, the First Great Awakening, if you, know, if you know anything about Edwards, he was very bad eyesight. I know this. couldn't, I mm-hmm. know And so he would hold his message up like this when he was giving it, you know, because he couldn't hardly read it. And he'd be reading it kind of flat and monotone like that. And people were writhing in the eyes. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just all these spirit thing It had nothing to do with Jonathan Edwards' lack of teaching acumen or how he did it. Uh, Second Great Awakening and, you know, largely camp meetings, you know, a totally different kind of venue. And. And environment and, and, and such and then and you know and, and and so you can just when you study all this it's just what happened at Asbury was beautiful just let it be beautiful don't use it I, I tweeted this quit using it to beat up on other on denominations that I mean this Asbury's Methodist on other denominations and how they do it or other theologies or quit using it to beat up on other worship styles or beat up on, on other things just let it beat up on you mm-hmm. let it beat up on your heart let it just you know that's what this is about and um, and uh and don't try to capitalize on it or just run over there so you can get a selfie about it so you can feel self-important or don't i mean and i'm not trying to sound snarky about it but i just saw a bunch of people respond to this in a way that was just so anti what i thought was happening there so i loved what was happening there i think it has absolutely nothing to say or an indictment of anything else it was just a movement of the holy spirit like there are movements of the holy spirit all over the planet that one got a lot of social media attention which is fine But there are things like that breaking out as amazing, if not more, you know, in in developing countries and in Africa and in Asia and so many other places. And it's just, you know, let's just celebrate the Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate what he wants to do and how he roams wild and free. And also that even if in your church, um, you know, you have a sleepy Wednesday night meeting that starts at seven and ends at eight and everybody goes right home, uh, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't there. And it doesn't mean that wasn't sincere, and doesn't mean it wasn't real, and doesn't mean there wasn't life change, and doesn't mean that you are a second-class citizen or that the Christian faith is built around these amazing experiences. And you have to just run from experience to experience to it factor to it factor. I mean, the, the truth is, is that for most of us, we'll never experience anything like that. Our churches will never experience anything like that. But the Holy Spirit is there, and doing His work. And we just need to celebrate what He does, and just say, hey, you know. Whatever happens for the kingdom, you know, yay, God. I love
0: that. Um, So the next question says, I hear you recently ordained your first female pastor. Can you talk about that?
1: It was you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alexis, uh, we did recently ordain you um, and um, and did it with great joy. You know, I've taught for years, years. Uh, and have blogged about women in ministry. We have a podcast on women in ministry that I would encourage that you listen to, and we'll try to put that in the chat room. I've always had a view and a theology of this. I always used to kid, you know, pleased nobody, <laughs> you know, complementarian or egalitarian. But I, then I would tongue-in-cheek tongue say, but at least, but mine's biblical. <laughs> mine's a biblical view. Um, what I mean by that is, is that at Mac, and again, I'm just telling you how it is here in my own theology of this, is that and i know this is big in the news with rick warren and saddleback which happened with sbc and and a lot of other things um but uh what we we hold to here what i've taught for years is that um we we really do believe in women in ministry that women can uh, uh flesh out any aspect of ministry teaching leadership everything we have women trustees we have women pastors women teachers women everything But I do believe, and uh, based on the teaching of of Paul, what he wrote to Timothy, that there is something rooted in creation in terms of authority and order, both of the family and the church, and that we believe that the senior pastor role should be male exclusive. So that's what I mean by we don't please anybody. You know, the complementarians feel like you can't have a woman in any kind of leadership, teaching role, whatever, we do egalitarians don't want to have any role excluded, including senior pastor. But we do, so we're kind of, you know, but again, for us, we believe that's biblical. We're trying to uphold everything in Scripture, and 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 to us, that's the way to do it. And a, a great treatment of this um, exegetically that will that I think is worth reading is um, John Stott's masterful exegesis and exposition of 1 Timothy um, called Guarding the Truth. And um, my, my thinking on how he exegetes that and where he concludes is, is just, it mirrors Stott uh, to the T. To the and, um, and so uh, Alexis was our first, she won't be our last, And but long before we ordained her and set her apart, which if you understand ordination, ordination is recognizing what God is doing in someone's life—it's where the church recognizes someone's spiritual gifting and how God is using them in the life of the church—and we're just kind of affirming what God is doing. And so that was that was a low-hanging fruit with you. But there were, um, but long before that, we had you know women teaching and in leadership and as trustees and such. And so that's been the balance that we've had. And and so I I I, I hate how divisive it's become. I hate how what I would consider. Um, uh, Exegetically tertiary because you can. I mean, Christians have fallen on both sides of this. I mean, and 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 you you have. I mean, you have a lot of women in ministry in the New Testament. So to link it, which is what I thought was so unfortunate about Rick, who's a friend, and Saddleback, and in what happened recent with the SBC, was that it was like, okay, we're we're eliminating this church for pedophilia or this church for you know hiring, over overcoming you know or or covering up sexual stuff, and and oh yeah, you ordained a woman like like it's the same kind of. Wow, um, and so that was disheartening f- for me because I, I I think that you're talking about apples and oranges, um, and so um, so yeah, that would be. And I can if you want to follow up on that, you can. But that's the gist of of that development of late.
0: Sure thing. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about the changing dynamics of online and in person services? Now it's a choice, versus being mandated. So how does that change things?
1: Well again this is different at every church and I can tell you about MEC, and this is something that I believe in very strongly I think that uh, what what we have done is that we have said that both uh, we have affirmed both online and in person as attending we we say we have an online campus we have an in, you know an in person campus a physical campus on any given week or any given event you know attend which way is you can and and best serves you know your you know what you're able to do and and, and and so we consider both attending, we consider both engaged, both involved. And so for us, yes, the pandemic for a season threw everything online. But then what happened was there was an effort for a lot of churches to say, okay, now get back in person. Pray in person is everything. We never held to that philosophy. Um, and a lot, some of the reason for that is in the book Hybrid Church, and and where because it's it's not a it's a it's a it's a it's, it's a biblically thought through, nuanced understanding. It's not like a Twitter war on this. It, it's it, you, know, you have to think through the one another. You have to think through what Hebrews means when it says let's not stop meeting together. And I think that, that the way that is often, those things are parroted out, it, it's not so neat and clean biblically and exegetically and uh, theologically. And so what where we have landed is that we have these two campuses attend either one and uh, both are legit attending. And, um, and what most people do, again, is, is a hybrid. They do, they do a combination of in-person and online. And you know, they might be in-person one week and online another week. And might be because of travel or because their kids are sick or because they, that week they, pre- they prefer it. We have a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people prefer the online campus. Uh, but that doesn't mean they never surface for embodied events or that they're not engaged in other aspects of community Or and on and on it goes. And so that, that's kind of a lot of what the book explores, how this whole new model, and it is a whole new model. I, I can't stress this enough. Um, and, and do I have a minute to chase this? Yeah, go okay. Ahead it, yeah. Um, when I say a whole new model, um, here's kind of the premise of, of the conversation, and I don't, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I don't think a lot of people are understanding the huge historical sweep of the conversation of the moment that we're in. When uh, there's only been uh, what, the change that we just are going through right now is only the third change like this in all of Christian history. Um, when the Christian movement began. You had the the two big dynamics for every church is the mission field and how are you going to reach that mission field? Mission field, how are you going to communicate with it? Okay, you go back to uh, Pentecost forward. Um, What was the mission field? It was largely pagan. You had Gentiles and Judaizing Gentiles, but basically it was a pagan culture, particularly after AD 70 and they broke out of Jerusalem and were going out in the world. So it was basically a pagan culture that was the mission field. And then um, the means of communication was oral. I mean, yes, Paul wrote lots of letters, but even when the letter was received by the church, it was read to the church. It was an oral event. And so communication was largely oral. Okay. Um, you fast forward then to, you could say, you know, Constantine's conversion, but at least from that around that era forward, you had a radically different change. And let's just say, by the way, that the, the iteration for the church for that time when, when it was a pagan mission field and an oral communication method, that was Church 1.0 say from the conversion of Constantine forward, um, what happened? Well, you had only the second biggest change, uh, the second change. You had the mission field went from uh, pagan, pre-Christian, a pre-Christian world, to Christian. And then communication went from oral to written. And yeah, written went later to mechanized, but it was still written. And that lasted from, you know, the 300s, arguably until the Enlightenment a little bit forward because a lot of people feel like you know everything ended with the Christian world with the enlightenment. That's not true. Humanism in the Renaissance began as a robust Christian humanism. Um, it took a while for the Enlightenment ideas to take hold. In fact, until like now, <laughs> very recently, they'd be really tip over into the third era, which was and so Church 2.0 took over for that middle era. Now our era is has changed again, only the third time. Now we've gone from pre-Christian to Christian to post Christian. And we've gone from oral to written to digital. So from Church 1.0, Church 2.0, to what now needs to happen, we need to become Church 3.0. Totally different way of approaching things, a, a real rethinking of the church in light of being a post-Christian digital world. I, 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 again, I don't mean this in a condescending way, I mean it in a like a like hopefully a prophetic way. I don't think the average Christian realizes what a profound change is happening right now and it's only the third time in 2,000 years of history and how it changes everything. And the model of church, it's going to have to be forged. And it's a new model is hybrid. And I have no doubt that much within that model is going to be deeply challenging. And it's going to have its its critics. I mean, there's, a, there's always this visceral resistance to something that truly is a paradigm shift. But there needs to be this paradigm shift because there's never been a cultural shift like this in over a thousand years. Hmm. And so this is a, a profound... A profound time.
0: Let's stay on that topic because one of our um, guests had received an advanced copy of Hybrid Church. So they've already read it and they have a follow-up question because you talk about in that book how the average unsaved person used to be like an 8 out of 10 in terms of being ready to...
1: On, on a scale, yes. moving down the line toward... Yes, yes. Yes.
0: And now they're like closer to 3. So can you elaborate on how that changes the process and the efforts that Mech is making to move yes, people yes. down that line?
1: Yes. And to, to kind of give a quick snapshot of what she said uh, that, is in the, that is in the book, um, I make the case that uh, there needs to be a change from an event-oriented approach toward, for example, evangelism, um, to a process and event. Um, and I've been, I've been, I've been uh, teaching about this in some of my speaking for some time, but this is the first time I've really fleshed a lot of this out in, in a book. And, and put it in, and kind of let it mature in my own thinking in, in terms of this. Like I said, this book was three years in the, in the writing and research. So, in essence, it's this. is that before, um, let's just say 1950s, 1960s, so I'll just pick that arbitrarily. The, the days of Billy Graham at uh, his heyday. You know, the average person that you were trying to reach was sitting on an eight, on a scale of one to 10. You know, zero is as far from Christ as you can be, and 10 is that moment where you come to saving faith and knowledge in Christ. Okay, the average person was sitting on an eight. What I mean by that is, they were pretty far down the line. They already had a lot in their spiritual pedigree. You know, they had, they believed that truth existed. They they had a background in church that was relatively uh, positive. They had a positive view of church leaders and religious leaders. They had a built-in sense of guilt and conviction that would kick in whenever they violated the basic tenets of the Judeo, Judeo-Christian value system. They, they um, you know, all of the, they, they believed the Bible was, was trustworthy and they honored the Bible. And I mean, oh my gosh, if I had all that in somebody today, I could, you know, Went them to Christ with a tweet. And so, you know, they were just on an eight. You just All you had to do was bump them. And if you know anything about the, um, the top evangelistic approaches of that era, they were all designed for bumps. They were all designed for event evangelism, not process. They were already on an eight, so all you had to do was just bump them. Mm. And so what were the four biggest ways that you reached people for Christ back then, or churches in evangelism? Uh, revivals, busing, door-to-door, uh, visitation in Sunday school. All of them designed for someone who was on an eight, which is why Billy could get up with his crusades and Billy Graham's one of my greatest heroes. And my time with him before his death was some of the, and Ruth, some of the greatest times of my life. And you know, but he, he but his, his era was he could stand up and say the Bible says. And, and, and people would go, oh, oh, you know, and, and that's, that's, that doesn't have the effect now. Uh, that it did. Um, busing, you could drive a bus through your neighborhood. Hey, parents, load your kids up on this bus. You don't know us. We don't know you. We're strangers. But give us your kids. We're going to go halfway across town. We, we'll we'll get them back to you later today. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And you know, Sunday school wanting to begin your entire spiritual exploration with an intense small group experience on campus of a church. Not going to happen. Um, and door to door, I mean, that's even illegal in most garden gate communities. And, and not only that, it's, 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 it's just, it's just not considered particularly effective. So, um, but they were effective then. I, I, they were anointed then because people were sitting on an eight. Okay. If you go back now to where people are, I mean, three, that's probably being generous, but let's just say they're on a three, um, which means, uh, you know, Event oriented evangelism is not going to be particularly effective. What you need is process and event, which means a, a, something that, okay, I'm going to be doing things that move you down the field from a three to a five to a six to where you get to that point where you can entertain responsibly, you know, a call uh, on your life for Christ. And so, you know, uh, at MAC, that's why we will. We don't have a decision every weekend. We don't have an altar call every weekend. We have decision weekends, but they're, they're, they're littered throughout the year, usually at the end of a series that was very intentional about process, you know, and then, you know, call. Um, and when people ask, so, so what is involved in that process? How do you move people from three to an eight? Well, I, I get into that in the book, but I'll give you one of the headlines. One of the headlines is explanation. The new apologetics is, is explanation. Uh, so much of our old apologetics was answering questions that were enlightenment-based. You know, does God exist? Is the Bible true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Good questions and they need to be answered at some point. But um, the questions have changed now. It's not, does God exist? What kind of God are you saying exists? You know? Because what I've heard about the God of the Bible is that He's a moral monster and I don't want anything to do with Him. Or, the, or it's more like, um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, uh, I, I'm wide open to God, but man, you Christians are messes, <laughs> you know, judgmentalism and intolerant and hypocritical and all this. I mean, you're just dealing with different questions, different barriers you're needing to kind of move out of the way. This is how one of the ways I put it is this. It used to be at Mech, probably all the time you started to come, uh, Lex, um, Alexis came in, in middle school mm-hmm. and uh, alone and found Christ here and. Was baptized here and and so forth. She's a poster child of kind of what we're about and reaching people, but early on in the '90s and 2000s, when someone would come as a non-Christian, the typical person would come thinking they were Christian, and then a lot of the process was helping them understand that they weren't. <laughs> you know, they had a cultural Christianity, um, and 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 then stripping that away to where they realized, oh my gosh, I. I I'm really not a Christian, and I really do need to come to him as Lord and Savior, and leader and forgiver. Now, so say to strip away cultural Christian stuff. Now they come saying, absolutely, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> the last thing I want to be is a Christian. And you have to strip away the caricatures of what they've got in their head that it means to be a Christian. So it's still a process. It's still a stripping away, but a stripping away of different things. And then when they realize, oh my gosh, okay, if that's what I've been rejecting, maybe I haven't been rejecting Christianity. I've been rejecting a caricature of Christianity. Okay, give me, give me. Okay, tell me, tell me about this Jesus and the real Jesus. And then so that's where you begin. So that's something of that dynamic.
0: Well, so is that related? Because we have a question about how do you choose your series. I'm sure those two things are related.
1: Oh, they are. You know, <laughs> and this is why you know why what I do with church and culture is is so integral to being to me being a pastor, and particularly a church that. Is trying to reach the unchurched, and again, uh, as you know, seventy percent of our total growth comes from people who were previously unchurched. I know that's a staggering number, but it, it's 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 our number, and it has been for the whole run. But that's intentional because so many churches, and again, I'm not trying to put those down. I'm just I just I, give me an umbrella of grace to just say what I, what I'm trying to say. So many churches have evangelism as rhetoric, but not reality. And they, they talk good talk, but they, they, when you drill down, they're really, not, they're really not thinking about unchurched people and what it takes to reach unchurched people. I mean, so many times, and, and you've had this happen too, so many times people from other churches or people who are new here come, and they spend a little time, and after about a day or two, a week, a month, they say, Oh my gosh, you guys really are for the unchurched. Like, like really? I mean, we're talking DNA. Like, like, you're asking questions about this kind of stuff every day, about everything, and that's true. And so my study of culture dovetails wonderfully with, with series selection. And it's not that I'm just constantly doing topical cultural series. It's, it's more like, okay, I may be doing a series that's verse-by-verse, verse exe- exegetical through a book of the Bible, but the questions that I'm addressing as I teach it are the questions that a natural mind would ask. Mm. So, for example, right now we're doing a series called Primordial, and I'm walking the church through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I'm teaching Genesis 1 through 11, basically verse by verse, basically expositional, basically straightforward. But if you don't think I'm not hitting the pause button and saying, okay, I know what you wanna talk about. Where did the dinosaurs fit in? How long were these days? What about the Big Bang Theory? What about evolution? What about gender when it says male and female? What about, what does it mean to be human? Um, and so I'm, I'm addressing the questions of our day because I know those are the questions they're bringing to this text. And so you can, it kind of helps you, uh, so it's not just you're always doing topical series, but when you're walking through something, a, a section of the Bible, you also are bringing, applying that Bible to not only issues of life, but issues of the day. And and that's a, that's a to me, I find here, it's a vibrant, electrifying thing to do um, uh, for, for the people we're trying to reach.
0: Um, one of our um, guests has pointed out that COVID definitely, and we've talked about this in another podcast, definitely did a, did a number on the whole idea of like quiet quitting. And we felt that like within the church as well. and they have a question in terms of how that is, has affected volunteering and the strategy of volunteering. They said, there's so many good books on volunteer volunteerism, but I'm finding old vision casting strategy to not hit as hard as it used to. Do you have any advice or books on like the new volunteer? Yes, no, no, I don't have any books. I was
1: like, yes, there are some thoughts, um, okay. some things that we're, we're dealing with and wrestling with here. And I think that there's a couple, three things that I would throw out there. Um, that uh, I think that because of what COVID did to churches, almost all churches found themselves post-pandemic, once reopening, that their in-person attendance was less than it was pre-pandemic. Their volunteer base, for whatever reason, was less. Everything was us. almost a, almost a rebuilding. Yep. Okay, there are several things I would say about that. One, don't go spending all of your energy trying to go back and, and get old volunteers and kind of keep saying, oh, you know, where are you? We need you, whatever. I don't, A, if, if you've got somebody who is not Robustly attending online. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you know, let's just say that they're they're not online. I, I we've got tons of really engaged volunteers that are they're just online. I don't, so that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they're not in your orbit. You, you know, they're not giving. They're not attending online or in person. They have drifted. You haven't seen them in three years, friend. They're gone. Whether they're at another church or they just stopped attending. I'm, just, I'm not saying. Cut off your heart toward them. Reach out to them as you can. But at some point, you don't keep going back to them saying, come back and be a greeter. They've, they've moved on. You've got to start anew. You've got to create volunteers from what you have now. The church you have now is the church you have. Don't go back and keep trying to resurrect the one that was. Um, you The church you have is what you have. What you have online is what you have. What you have in person is what you have. And that's either better than than before this all started, worse, the same, but it is what you have. Um, and so that's first. So you need to work at new volunteers, brand new folks that are engaged. Second thing that I would say is that you need to create brand new volunteer opportunities that didn't exist before in light of what I hope is going to be an increasingly hybrid model for churches all over the world. In other words, do you have online volunteer opportunities. Do you have opportunities that will engage people who are attending online or are more comfortable attending online? Do you have do you have those kinds of things? You have serving opportunities that aren't just that are just really like not just, hey, come come be a, a, a you know, a help park cars, which is desperately needed, but it's also like, hey, but, you know, uh, it, it, what about a serve day? We're going to go to a, 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 you know, a, a food pantry. We're going to stock food for a Saturday morning. Well, you, know, you look for different ways to serve and engage where somebody says, you know, not that, but I could do that. You know, it's a variety. Not everything is... In other words, I think that we built so much of our volunteering around a Sunday-centric, big, attractional crowd event, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, but at the same time, we, we need a vision that, that sees a seven-day-a-week incarnational serving approach and helping people see how they can make a difference that way as well. Another thing that I would say is um, um, is, to, is to work really hard at, at the volunteers that you have and, and sometimes, um, this is a conversation we're having among several of our staff right now, we, we tend to want to work on attraction. We don't tend to think much about retention. And, 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 and here's an interesting question. How do you pay a volunteer? How do you pay them? Okay, they came, they did. What, 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 what did they get? Well, I'll tell you what they hope they're not going to get. Somebody knows their name.
0: Hmm.
1: That they're appreciated. That they're valued that they matter, that they're making a difference. That when they got out of bed that morning and they drove in and they got here early and they were hauling three screaming kids and they attended a service and then they served a service watching other kids when they've already got kids at home and they're doing that, for somebody to come up beside them at some point in time, whether it doesn't have to be every week, but at some point in time somebody says, oh my gosh, let me tell you what you did. Let me tell you how what you did mattered and, and how much we see it because you were here, we were able to take X number of kids, not turn them away. These young couples that were coming here for the very first time who do not know Jesus or, you know, whatever, they, 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 they were able to do that because of you, because of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a a bit about that.
0: Mm. Okay. So related to that, um, the question is if your series in church is for the unchurched. and what ways do you help the people that are already Christian at your church grow and learn more about the Bible and God?
1: Okay, caricature time. <laughs> the caricature is, or the stereotype I should say, is that if you do a, a series or if you're trying to reach the unchurched, that that series won't serve the church. I can't begin to tell you how many times that when I do, you know, I'm constantly doing service with the unchurched in mind. And yet, I, that yet church people who have been there 60 years will say, thank you, this, I've, never, I've, I've always wanted this topic addressed, it's never been addressed, I've always wondered about that. Um, and so what you find is that the average Christian hasn't really been effectively discipled, and so many of their questions align with the questions of non-Christians. And so that uh, this wasn't true in the 90s and 2000s or even in the 2010, or even in the early 2010s, but I find now I can throw a rock and I can hit both. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an invigorating time for me as a communicator, as a teacher, as a pastor, because I'm finding that the questions of Christians and non-Christians are kind of conflating, and they're one and the same. And they both are sharing some of the same confusions and some of the same issues. And so, um, so like I can do a series on, for example, gender. And I've got non-Christians wanting to know how to think about that and where Christianity stands with the Bible stands. And i got Christians saying, please clean this up for me, because I am so confused. And so you can, you can, you can. I think today it's, it, it's both and. But I also will say that don't put all the discipleship apples in the weekend basket. In fact, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that at all. We we feel like you you've desperately need a focused discipleship ministry for us at the Mac Institute that is completely focused on discipleship with seminars, mentoring, classes, experiences, such. For ours, we have everything from beginning classes on how to pray all the way up to graduate level courses in systematic theology or church history, uh, mentoring experiences, trips to the Holy Land, everything you can imagine. I mean, it's just this amazing institute uh, experience for discipleship, which we'll be going into more in the um, in the uh, Church and Culture Spring workshops. There's an entire, if you, if you come to the ministry workshops, or register for those next month, an entire one of the workshops is entirely on the Mech Institute and how we do that and what's involved with that. But... We focus on discipleship through that. We don't put all the eggs in the basket on the weekend. Hmm.
0: I I think we're gonna call, I think' I'm, we're gonna end our conversation now. I feel like if I if we go in a different direction, we might run out of time. So okay. um, all to say, um, if you didn't get your questions answered, don't be surprised if you see them as the topic of an upcoming podcast, so don't be dismayed there. Um, <clears throat> if you weren't able to join us live and you're interested in getting hold of some of these resources, I'm sure we will have a very lengthy um, show notes um, put together for you. Um, but this has been so helpful. I really appreciate everybody who um, provided the questions. I mean, yeah, we didn't even get to all of them, but all of the questions that were asked were so great. Thank you for yeah. your time in answering this. Um, and, yeah, do you have any closing remarks before no, we... No,
1: just kind of pray for everybody real quick. Father, thank you so much for this conversation that we're able to have. And I just thank you for the questions, and I just pray that the answers were helpful. But I want to close the way I often close privately and publicly as well. I pray that what was of you will remain in hearts and minds, and what is not will quickly fade away. But it will be the Holy Spirit that will make that decision for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks.